welcome to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. This podcast is devoted to helping increase your daily exposure to God's Word with a short scripture reading and brief commentary on key ideas, themes, and theology in each chapter. Now please join your host, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. Well, welcome back to to the Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And today we're going to look at Exodus 12. Just as a reminder, every day I look at one chapter of God's Word. So today we're going to look at Exodus chapter 12. And then I offer a brief explanation of key ideas, themes, and the theology very briefly. My goal is to get you into God's Word for about 5 to 20 minutes every day. So let's get to our reading today from Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 says this, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat of any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statue forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everybody needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statue forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leaven, the, the person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native in the land. You shall eat nothing unleavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. 
Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said, Go and select lands for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statue for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt, when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. And then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste for they said, we shall all be dead. And so the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel also done as Moses told them for they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait nor had they prepared any provisions themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord uh, to bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statue of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is brought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, that he may come near and keep it, and he shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Well, this is our reading today from Exodus chapter 12. 
You know, it's not too hard to understand why God plagued the Egyptians. Their king was a cruel tyrant who tried to destroy the people of God. And we know Pharaoh would not let them go, choosing instead to keep them enslaved in Egypt. And by refusing to let them depart, he was preventing them from giving glory to God the way that God intended. And so God was justified in punishing the Egyptians with insect and amphibians with disease and darkness. And by sending plague after plague, nine and all, God was showing his power over creation. And what the Egyptians should have done in response was repent of their sins and join Moses in giving praise to the one true God. And yet the more Pharaoh suffered, the harder his heart became. This was because his heart was committed to serving other gods. And so one by one, God defeated the gods and goddesses of Egypt. The plague of blood defeated the river gods of the Nile. The locusts defeated the field gods of the harvest. The darkness defeated the gods of the sun and the sky, and so on and so on. And still Pharaoh refused to let the people of God go. Well, finally, God sent the tenth and the deadliest plague of all, the death of the firstborn. This was a battle of the gods, a contrast between the deities, and God was determined to win. In Exodus 12, 12, he says, on the same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Now, with this final plague, God accomplished his objective, namely to demonstrate his lordship over the Egyptians by defeating all their gods, together with the demonic powers they represented. With one deadly blow, God achieved his conquest over Egypt's gods, and in doing so, he gave the Egyptians what they deserved. The last plague was a glorious act of the sovereign justice of God. Now, what God did to the Egyptians, it was no surprise at all, but what may seem surprising is the way he treated his people Israel. And like the Egyptians, the Israelites were under a sentence of death. The same night that God brought death to every house in Egypt, he also visited the home of every Israelite, according to Exodus 12, 13 and Exodus 12, 23, with the purpose of killing their firstborn sons. Now, in his mercy, of course, God provided his people with a way to escape his wrath. But first, we must reckon with the fact that the destroyer, as God calls him in verse 23 of our chapter, claimed the right to slay the children of God. Now, the Israelites must have been shocked to discover that their lives were in mortal danger. All the previous plagues had left them unscathed because God had made a distinction between his people and Pharaoh's people. And while chaos engulfed their oppressors, the Israelites had watched from safety of Goshen. From this, they learned that they were God's very special people, the apple of his eye, his treasured possession. And this may have tempted them to believe that they were more righteous than the Egyptians, indeed, that they could do no wrong. But the truth was that they deserved to die every bit as much as their enemies. In fact, if God had not provided a means for their salvation, they would have suffered the loss of every last one of their firstborn sons. The Israelites were as guilty as the Egyptians. And in the final plague, God taught them about their sin and his salvation. God's people had sinned in several ways. One was to reject the word of God's prophet. When Moses returned from his first audience with Pharaoh, the Israelites greeted him by saying in Exodus 5.21, May the Lord look upon you and judge you. You have made us a stench to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Neither the Egyptians nor the Israelites would listen to the word of God. Now, the Israelites were also guilty of idolatry. That sin is not specifically mentioned here in Exodus, but it's remembered in the years to come. 
when the Israelites renewed the covenant at Shechem, Joshua said in Joshua 24, 14, throw away the gods your forefathers worship beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now, not surprisingly, during the long centuries of captivity, the Israelites grew to love the gods of Egypt. And for this sin, God would have been justified in plaguing them even to the death of their firstborn sons. Now, apart from any particular sin they might have committed, God's people were sinners by nature and by choice. The mere fact of their humanity meant that they participated in the guilt of Adam's race. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, the first Passover proved the, that fact by Im implicating Israel in Egypt's sin, thereby showing that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin, according to Romans 3.9. Now, the reason the avenging angel visited the Israelites was because, like the Egyptians, they were sinners, and sin is a capital offense. The proper penalty for sin is death, which has always been the wages of sin, according to Romans 6.23. Now, when God planted Adam in the Garden of Eden, he said in Genesis 2.17, You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Sadly, this is exactly what happened. As soon as our first parents ate the forbidden fruit, they became mortal, and so did all their children, down to the present generation. This fact would seem to demand some sort of explanation. In the entire history of our human race, no generation has ever avoided going down to the grave. Well, why not? Because Romans 5.12 says, Death came to all men because all sin. The tenth plague was a sign of God's judgment against all humanity. This is a reality that every individual must face. If all have sinned, that includes us. And if death has come to all people, then we too can expect to die. It's as simple as that. We will never see our need of salvation until we accept that we are as guilty as everyone else and that therefore our lives are forfeit to God. And now, in his great mercy, God provided his people with a way to be safe. The reason he visited their homes was not to destroy them, but to teach them about salvation. Like the Egyptians, the Israelites deserved divine judgment. But unlike the Egyptians, they would be saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And, and when God, what God's people needed was atonement, which God provided in the form of a lamb, a lamb offered as a sacrifice for sin. First, he gave them careful instructions about how to choose to care for and finally kill the lamb in Exodus 12, 1-6. Now, every household was to choose its own lamb, specifically a yearling. It had to be perfect. The lamb was destined to serve as a sacrifice for sin, and the only sacrifice acceptable to God is a perfect sacrifice. And so the lamb had to be pure and spotless, whole and sound. As Moses warned the Israelites in Leviticus 22, 20-22. Now, because God is holy, the only sacrifice that please him is the very best that we have to offer. God then proceeds to explain what to do with the lamb once it was slain in Exodus 12, 7-11. This meal was intended to serve as an annual reminder of what the Israelites suffered in Egypt. And the bitter herbs would remind them how the Egyptians made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields, according to Exodus 1.14. And so the unleavened bread would remind them how they had to flee in haste. Now they ate the first Passover standing up, ready to leave Egypt at a moment's notice. And there were no leftovers. Once it was roasted, the entire lamb had to be consumed. Scripture doesn't explain why, but presumably it was too sacred to be used for any other purpose. And perhaps we can say eating the lamb also pointed forward to the coming of Christ, for Jesus said in John 6.53, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Every year, God provided a lamb or a similar sacrifice for Israel. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest would bring an animal into the presence of God and sacrifice it as a sin offering. These were his instructions as given in Leviticus 16, 15, and 16. And God provided what God required, a substitute sacrifice to die for his people. Now, the consistent message of the Bible is that anyone who wants to meet God must come on the basis of the lamb that he has provided. All the other lambs prepared for the coming of Christ. A theologian would call them types. In other words, the lambs were signs pointing to salvation in Christ. As the famous Jonathan Edwards wrote in the uh, history of the work of redemption, Christ and his redemption are are the subject of the whole word of God. This was true, the first Passover, which, like everything else in Exodus, was about Christ and his redemption. To be sure, we, we don't miss the connection. The New Testament says that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. For Jesus to be our Passover lamb, he had to meet God's standard of perfection. Now, back in the Exodus, the Passover lamb had to be physically flawless. In the case of Jesus, the perfection God required was moral. Jesus had to be utterly sinless. Scripture is careful to show that this was indeed the case. By virtue of his virgin birth, his nature was free from the corruption of original sin. Nor did Jesus commit any actual transgression. 1 Peter 2.22 says, He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. The book of Hebrews says that he was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin, in Hebrews 4.15. Even Pontius Pilate said, I find no basis for a charge against him, in John 19.6. Jesus was morally perfect. And so when it came time for him to die, it was an innocent victim. He offered himself unblemished to God, according to Hebrews 9.14. Hebrews uses the word unblemished because the writer was thinking of the kind of sacrifice that God required in the Old Testament, a perfect lamb without spot or blemish. Now, it's theologically significant that Jesus was crucified right at the time of the Passover feast, according to John 13.1 and John 18.28. This helps us to see the connection between the first Passover and the final Passover, the Passion of Christ. The day that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem was the very day that the Passover lambs were driven into the city. And when Jesus celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples, he was celebrating the Passover in Matthew 26, 17. In fact, he said in Matthew 26, 26 through 28, this is my body, this is my blood. His disciples didn't understand this at the time, but Jesus was really saying, the Passover is all about me. I am the sacrificial lamb. And then Jesus was crucified. It was late in the afternoon on the eve of Passover. At twilight, lambs were to be sacrificed by every household according to the law of Moses. So all over the city, fathers were getting ready to make the offering, gathering their families together and saying, God has provided a lamb for us. Over at the temple, the high priest was also preparing a lamb to present as an atonement for Israel's sin. Then there was Jesus hanging on the cross with the sacrificial blood flowing from his hands and his side. He was the Lamb of God taking away the sins of the world. Now, it is necessary to mention the blood of Jesus because the Passover regulations explicitly required a blood sacrifice. There is blood spilling all over Exodus 12. The Israelites were commanded to slaughter their lambs in verse 6 of our chapter today. And of course, there was no way to do this without the shedding of blood. Once the lamb was sacrificed, they were to take its blood and paint it on their door frames. This too was absolutely essential because God said in verse 13, The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. 
Now, what was so important about the blood? It represented the taking of a life. Notice that this was assigned both to the Israelites and to their God. Verse 13 says, the blood will be assigned for you. And when I see the blood, what the blood signified to the Israelites was that they had a substitute, that a lamb had died in their place and for their sin. Their sin was a capital offense. God was coming in judgment armed with a deadly plague. But when they looked up and they saw blood on the door, they knew that they were covered. To use a technical term for it, the blood of the lamb was the expiation for their sins. And while the book of Exodus does not draw an explicit connection between the blood of the lamb and the sin of his people, this connection is implied. In the words of the brilliant Dutch theologian Gerhardus Voss, wherever there is slaying and manipulation of blood, there's expiation. And both these were present in the Passover. Now, to be clear, expiation has to do with the removal of sin as far as the east is from the west, as the psalmist says. Now, the importance of the lamb as a substitute would not have been lost on the firstborn son. Once the lamb was chosen, it kept in the house for four days, during which time the family fed it, cared for it, and played with it. Now, in that short time, they would have identified with the lamb so that it almost became part of their family. This is our Passover lamb, they would say, and then it was slaughtered, which was a messy, bloody business. The head of the household took the lamb in his arms, pulled back its head, and slit its throat. Red blood spurted all over the lamb's pure white wool. Why, daddy, the children would say, their father would explain that the lamb was a substitute. The firstborn did not have to die because the lamb had died in his place. On that first Passover, the Israelites huddled in their homes, waiting for God to come in judgment. That night, he would claim a life from every household in Egypt. All over the land, they could hear the wailing of their enemies who were mourning the death of their firstborn sons. But the children of God were saved by the blood of the Lamb. Death passed over them. The reason death passed over them was because they were under the blood. And when God came to the home of an Israelite, he could see the blood on the door. And when he looked at it, he said, in effect, someone has died in this house. The penalty has been executed. To use the technical term for it, the blood was a propitiation. It turned away the wrath of God. The doorpost put blood between God and the sinner. And when people looked up, they saw that they had an expiation, a covering for their sin, a removal of their sin in the sight of God. So when God looked down, he saw that they had made propitiation and thus his wrath was turned aside. What was needed was the blood of Jesus, our Passover lamb. And this is where some people start to get squeamish, including many contemporary supposed evangelical theologians. They like to talk about Jesus as a savior and a teacher, but they want nothing, no talk about his blood. Now, we believe in the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Jesus shed his own blood for our sins. In fact, the New Testament is crystal, crystal clear about this. And when the New Testament explains the meaning of the crucifixion, it constantly draws attention to the blood of Jesus. In Romans 5, 9, Paul says, We have now been justified by his blood. In Ephesians 1, 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 13, 12 says, Jesus also suffered to make the people holy through his own blood. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, You are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. 1 John 1, 7, The blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. The reason for all of this talk about blood is very simple. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so, in order to be saved from death, we need the blood of a perfect substitute to interpose between our sin and God's holiness. 
the sign that we have a substitute is the blood of Christ. So when we look to up to the cross, we see the payment that has been made for our sin. And what does God see when he looks down at the cross? He sees that it is stained with the blood of his very own firstborn son. God does not have a substitute to offer in place of his own son. His son is the substitute. And when God sees the blood of his son, he says, it is enough. My justice has been satisfied. The price for sin is fully paid. Death will pass over you and you will be saved forever. The blood on the cross has a power to save because it is the blood of Jesus who is the very son of God. There is no more precious blood than this in all the universe. And unlike the blood of even the most perfect Passover lamb, it has infinite value. The only way to be saved from sin and delivered from death is by Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. God calls everyone to trust in his blood. This is what the Israelites did at the first Passover. They trusted in the blood. Now, putting blood on the doorposts was an act of faith. In order to be delivered from death, they had to believe God's word. And that meant doing what Moses said. It was by faith that each family chose a perfect lamb. By faith, they took its life and roasted it with bitter herbs. And by faith, they spread its blood on the door. The blood was a public confession of their faith, a sign that they trusted in the atoning efficacy of the sacrificial lamb of God. Thus, they were saved by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. God provided the lamb, that's grace. But the Israelites had to trust in the lamb which is where faith comes in Hebrews 11:28 says by faith he Moses kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel if you have been there for the first Passover would you have sacrificed a lamb of course you would have so will you trust in the blood that Jesus shed on the cross well scripture says in Romans 3:25, God presented him Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood God has provided the lamb who takes away the sins of the world and everyone who trusts in his blood will be saved. Now, to make sure that his people would never forget their salvation, God gave them a special memory, Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The feast was meant to be an annual celebration. Three times God told the, the Moses that he wanted the Passover to become a permanent addition to Israel's calendar in verses 14 of our chapter, in verses 17 of our chapter, and verse 24 of our chapter. You see, Passover was a feast to remember. It was an annual reminder of the saving grace of God in which Israel's deliverance from Egypt was commemorated and even celebrated. The Exodus was not re repeated, of course, but it was symbolically reenacted with blood and with bread. The feast God's people shared was something they could see, that they could taste, they could touch, that they could smell. By reliving their escape from Egypt, they preserved the message of salvation in their collective memory. Passover was given so that the future generations would know the salvation of their God. Now in Exodus 12, the instructions for the Passover are given twice, separated by instructions for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Verses 1-3 through three of our chapter today, they concern the selection and the slaughter of a perfect lamb. And once the lamb was slain, its blood was spread on the doorpost. The blood was a sign that a sacrifice had been made for sin, and thus it protected Israel's firstborn sons from the angel of death. Now finally the lamb was roasted and eaten together with bitter herbs and bread without yeast. Exodus 12, 21 through 23, gives these instructions that are repeated uh, in a slightly different form. What comes in between is a set of regulations for the Feast of Unleavened Bread in verses 14 through 20, which was celebrated during the week that followed Passover. 
The way that the chapter is organized has led some scholars to conclude that the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were two separate celebrations. And some even go as far to argue that the original neither festival had any connection with the Exodus at all. Sacrificing an animal, they say, was an ancient Bedouin ritual, so the Passover was a holdover from the days of Israel's running. And since the Feast of Unleavened Bread was associated with grain agriculture, it must have come later when the Israelites settled in the Promised Land. Yet, Passover was followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which lasted for an entire week. The regulations for this feast are very specific in verses 15 through 20 of our chapter. Not only were these instructions very specific, they're also very strict. Four times the Israelites were told to not to eat anything with yeast, and twice they were told if they did, they would be cut off from Israel. In other words, they would be banished from the covenant community of the people of God. They were not even allowed to have any yeast in their homes. Why not? Was it simply a matter of public hygiene? What was so important about yeast? Well, for one thing, as we've already seen, unleavened bread reminded the Israelites of their hasty departure. But getting rid of the yeast had another purpose. Although it's not explicitly stated in Exodus 12, Jewish teachers have always understood yeast to represent the corrupting power of sin. Unleavened bread symbolized holiness. What makes this comparison suitable is that unleavened bread is made of pure wheat untouched by yeast. So when God's people ate unleavened bread, they were reminded to keep themselves pure from sin and especially from the evils of Egypt. To this day then, Jewish families celebrate Passover when they search their homes for leaven and then sweep it out the door. This symbolic act shows that they have a commitment to lead a life free from sin. Yeast is an appropriate symbol for sin because of the way it grows and spreads. As yeast ferments, it works its way all throughout the dough. Sin works the same way, which is why the Bible makes this comparison. Sin is always trying to extend its corrupting influence through a person's entire life, but God has something better in mind for his people. He was saving them to sanctify them. So before they left Egypt, he wanted them to make a clean sweep. God wanted uh, to do something more than get his people out of Egypt. He wanted to get Egypt out of his people. He was saving them with a view to their sanctification. And so he told them to make a clean sweep. He commanded them to get rid of every last bit of yeast, the old yeast of Egyptian idolatry. And so to further show that they were all making a fresh start, God gave his people a new calendar. He said in verse 2, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. It was a new year to mark a new spiritual beginning. This is what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5, 6-8. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. These verses from the New Testament endorse the traditional interpretation of leaven. In them, Paul is plainly referring to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for he identifies Christ as the Passover lamb and even speaks of keeping the festival. And when he talks about getting rid of the old yeast, he's talking about a ritual that no doubt went back to his childhood, when every year at Passover, his family would sweep their home, searching for every last trace of yeast. Here the apostle explains that the old yeast represents the sin of his old life, sins like hatred, anger, and deceit. Jesus said something similar when he warned his disciples in Luke 12, 1, be on guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Both Jesus and Paul used yeast as a symbol for sin. 
God wants us to remember that we are saved in order to be sanctified. It is good to remember our salvation, but we must also remember that we have been saved for God's glory alone. And that means getting rid of the sin in our lives and putting it to death by God's grace and with the help of his, of the Holy Spirit. After all, Scripture teaches that God has saved us and called us to a holy life in 2 Timothy 1.9. Now, part of what it means to lead a holy life is to sweep away sin before it has a chance to grow. Even a small sin is dangerous because like yeast, it wants to spread. This is why God has a zero tolerance policy when it comes to sin. Anyone who thinks that some sins can be tolerated misunderstands the whole meaning of salvation. God delivered us from our bondage so that we would make a clean sweep. Every believer needs to apply this personally. Is there a sin that you have decided to tolerate? Are you nursing a pirate grudge or indulging a secret lust? Is there something that you have decided that is all right for you to take, even though it doesn't actually belong to you? Do you think that worry and impatience are not really sins, but just bad habits? Is there some area of your personal life where you have decided that it's okay to be undisciplined? Well, perhaps you think it's only a small sin. Perhaps from time to time you tell yourself that you will start to do something about it once it starts to get and then it starts to get out of control if that's what you're doing then you are in great spiritual danger because sin is like yeast once it gets in your life it's going to keep growing and it's going to keep spreading and it's going to keep corrupting everything before that happens god's word has something very simple very straightforward to say to you get rid of it Scripture describes what the Israelites did when they first received the instructions uh, from God for Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread in verses 27 through 28 of our chapter. The people worshipped and obeyed. First, they got down on their hands and knees and praised the Lord, and then they got back up and did exactly what the Lord did down to the last detail. Now, their response is significant because it reminds us of this entire theme of Exodus. God's purpose in bringing Israel out of Egypt was to save a people for his own glory, a people who would give him all the praise. And finally, the people were starting to do that. The last we heard from them in Exodus 5.21, they were so discouraged that they had given up hope of salvation. But now they were starting to worship the Lord even before he actually saved them. All they had was a promise of salvation, although it's worth noting that God had already started to speak about their salvation in the past tense in verse 17 of our chapter today. God was so absolutely confident of his power to save that as far as he was concerned, they started to give him the glory. Their response is also significant because it shows us what to do whenever we recover from our spiritual amnesia. We are prone to forget. We're prone to wander from the God we love, right? We forget the sinfulness of our sin and the grace of God in Christ. We forget that God wants us to stop sinning. And then we have another one of our deja vu experiences. We say, oh, I remember now it's all coming back to me. The thing I need to remember about myself is that I'm a sinner in need of salvation. And the thing I need to remember about God is that he has given me a glorious salvation in Jesus Christ alone. As soon as we remember all of that, the proper way to respond is the way the Israelites responded, by getting down on our knees to worship the Lord. And once we get back on our feet, we need to remember what comes next. We are saved to be sanctified, so we should be doing whatever God tells us to do. Well, the death of the firstborn was the final blow, the tenth and the deadliest plague. By visiting death on the Egyptians while at the same time protecting the people of God, the Lord was declaring the basis for their salvation. And in one sense, what happened that night is never going to happen again. The angel of death will never strike down the sons of Egypt again, and never again will the Israelites smear blood on their doorposts. But the distinction God made that night is the one that he always makes, is the distinction between those who have faith in the blood of the sacrifice he provides 
abides and those who do not. And on that distinction rests the eternal destiny of every human being. This distinction runs throughout the, the Bible, throughout the whole Bible. This is how people were saved throughout the Old Testament. They received atonement by trusting in the blood of a lamb's sacrifice as a substitute for their sins. In fact, Jesus himself says this in the New Testament in John 6, 53. And now it might sound like a strange way that Jesus is talking about in John 6, 53 and 54. Well, obviously Jesus is not speaking there about people literally drinking his blood. Rather, he was looking forward to his crucifixion when he shed his blood for our sins in our place and also to the Lord's Supper in which Christians drink the cup that symbolizes his blood. Jesus was saying that eternal life depends on faith in the blood of the sacrifice that he made on the cross. And the power of his blood is proven at the end of the Bible for when the book of Revelation draws back the curtain to give us a glimpse of the glory of God, we see the saints enter heaven by the blood of the Lamb according to Revelation 7.14. Well, sadly, the Egyptians did not have faith in the blood. They did not offer a sacrifice for the many sins against God and his people. They did not put blood on their doorposts, and therefore they were destined for destruction. Not one single family escaped. Scripture is clear about this in verse 30 of Exodus 12. The terrible plague even came home to Pharaoh because someone was dead at the royal palace. It was the prince of Egypt, the son born to be like God to his people. But there was also someone dead down in the dungeon, the firstborn son of Egypt's lowest criminal. This indicates that what things will be like at the final judgment. God has promised that one day he will judge the world, and Revelation describes the coming judgment in great detail, including the return of the plagues. The angels of heaven will pour out seven bowls of wrath, and people will be afflicted with rivers of blood, painful sores, darkness, disease, frogs, and hail. According to Revelation 16, the very plagues first suffered by the Egyptians. And what Pharaoh suffered was only a premonition of the end of the world, when every human being who has ever lived will stand before God for judgment. We will all be there, the high and the low, the rich and the poor, the sinners and the saints. From dungeon to the throne, no one is going to escape. No one is going to be granted an exception. No one will receive any special treatment. The rich may travel first class all their lives, but when they get to the final judgment, God will not examine their bank accounts, nor will the poor have something coming to them simply because their lives are more difficult. God is no respecter of persons, and he will judge everyone by the same standard. He does not care what color we are, how much money we have, where we go to school, what company we work for, or even how good we are. What matters to God is whether or not we have faith in the sacrifice of his son. Those who trust in the blood of Christ will receive eternal life. Those who do not hold on to him and his cross will be finally and fatally lost forever in hell, a place of unending, unrelenting, conscious punishment. That is to say, the great divide between salvation and the damnation is marked in blood. Now, the Israelites, they were saved by blood. Most of them probably stayed up all night to see what would happen. Some of them may have even heard loud cries of anguish coming from their neighbors, Egyptians mourning the loss of their sons. Well, whether they heard the wailing or not, as they huddled together in their homes, they knew that death was in the air and they were afraid. But all they had to do was look to the blood, which was a sign of their salvation. Believers in Jesus Christ have the same confidence today. Whenever we are fearful or anxious, all we need to do is look to the cross where we see the guarantee of our salvation marked in blood. 
You see, God was watching to make sure that the salvation came just the way he promised. God would promise to rescue his people Israel in Exodus 3.8. He promised that the Egyptians would not let them go until he struck them down with all his wonders in Exodus 3.20. He promised that they would not leave empty-handed, but that the Egyptians would send them away with clothing and jewelry in Exodus 3.21 and 22. God had promised that when he saved his people, they would know that he was their God in Exodus 6, 6 or 7. And the Egyptians would know it too in Exodus 7, 5. He promised that they would leave in a big hurry in Exodus 12, 11. And on the night of the deadliest plague, when the Israelites took their first steps to freedom, all these promises came true. God always sees to it that he keeps his promises. Everything that he has ever promised us will come true. By faith, we will persevere to the end of life, enter glory, be raised from the dead, and enjoy the pleasures of God for all eternity. God is keeping his vigil. He is watching to make sure that it will all happen just the way he said it would. Now, Pharaoh's little concession speech stands as a warning to anyone who would resist God's will. For all his hardness of heart, all the times he told God no, and all the times he said yes, but never followed through, Pharaoh gained nothing. In the end, he had to accept everything on God's terms. So why not give in to God in the first place? It is much better not to resist his claim on your life, but simply accept his plan and his purpose. Now, Pharaoh's last words to Moses were totally pathetic. And also, bless me, he pleaded. Pharaoh had finally realized his mistake, but it was too late. Earlier, he had asked God's prophet to pray for him. Now he asked to receive a benediction. But what blessing could Moses possibly give to a man like Pharaoh? And there would be no blessing for Pharaoh, not even a mixed blessing. The man wanted God's favor without ever turning to him in faith and repentance. God will not bless a man who will not repent of his sin. Almost everybody today wants a blessing. Even people who, are, who do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ sometimes seek the service of a Christian. They ask for prayer. They want spiritual advice. Or they want to get married or buried in a church. But God's blessing is for those who trust in the blood. In other words, it is for people who admit they are sinners and who believe that God has paid for their sin with a perfect sacrifice. Now, in the time of Moses, God only blessed people who were covered by the blood of the Passover lamb. Today, God blesses those who trust in Jesus Christ, believing in the sacrifice he offered for sin on the cross. If you do not come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, God will not bless you. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching today's episode of Reading the Bible Daily with Dave. My name is Dave, and we looked at Exodus chapter 12. Until tomorrow, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Reading the Bible Daily with Dave podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to also like, subscribe, or follow Servants of Grace on Facebook, Instagram, X, or YouTube. We appreciate your support.